0: Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today, we're going to be talking about quantum computing, and we're not going to try to do that alone, Ethan, because uh, you and I proved quickly that we don't actually know as much as we thought we did. (laughs) Isn't that right?
1: We don't know much at all, but Abby does. Abby Mitchell from IBM certainly knows a good deal uh, about this topic and enlightened us on many things. And in fact, in this uh, episode, Ned, I felt like some things about quantum computing got put together for me, exactly what's going on. Down at the Qubit level and why Qubits matter.
0: Yeah, we really got into not just how it works, but how you can get involved with it. So if that piques your interest, enjoy this episode with Abby Mitchell. She's the quantum developer advocate at IBM. Welcome to the show, Abby. We're so excited that you've joined us. Can you tell the good folks at home a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in the quantum realm? Is it anything like that Ant-Man documentary I saw? (laughs)
2: Well, thank you for having me, Ned. You know, I haven't even seen the Ant-Man movie. I'm too scared that I'm going to go and not be able to enjoy it because I'll just be like, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's not real. (laughs) I don't think
0: they even tried. No, they didn't even try.
2: (laughs) How did I get into quantum? Uh, So my background is actually, I come from classical software development. Classical software is what we call like non-quantum software. I basically started at IBM as just a regular, actually a web developer, like building websites, uh, doing a little bit of cloud stuff as well. And then during the pandemic, I got super bored and found that IBM does this very uh, cool open source project called Qiskit that is basically an open source Python SDK for working with their quantum computers. And yeah, just during the pandemic, I started contributing to open source. And that was like my first kind of foray into the field of quantum. And then one thing led to another. And I ended up getting hired into the quantum team at IBM, doing a lot of kind of developer advocacy work. And yeah, here we are.
0: Awesome. All right. So, you didn't start out with a PhD in quantum mechanics from university or anything like that.
2: Oh my god. No. I honestly I haven't done physics academically formally since probably high school. My background, yeah, definitely much more in the software side, so I was coming at this from a okay, how do we actually make it work for regular people that code to work with this completely new type of of hardware?
0: Right, right. The only things I remember from physics are like the free body diagram and the right-hand rule. I couldn't tell you what they are, but I remember (laughs) the terms.
2: (laughs) I I think you remember those words. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. Right words, right order. Okay. (laughs) Speaking of quantum computing, I think most of us have heard sort of the boilerplate pitch for quantum computing. There's these things, they're called qubits, and they're kind of like binary bits, but they're different because they can hold... I don't know, like multiple possible states at the same time. They're both on and off, you know, the Schrodinger's (laughs) cat thing.
2: Yes, but no. I'm probably
0: getting it wrong.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) First of all, it's a very difficult subject matter to wrap your head around, especially if you're not coming from that physics background. And honestly, the best way to actually be able to understand it is not through... I, you know, we use a lot of metaphors like Schrodinger's cat or like it's in many states at the same time. Um, but all those metaphors sometimes can be a little bit misleading. And people are going to hate that I have to say this, but the best way to be able to understand what's actually going on is to dig into the maths of it. I don't even know how to like verbally explain on a podcast, but I recommend <laughs> people go and like look at the, the linear algebra background. And essentially, yeah, you have these qubits, which... You know in terms of physically you can think about them as like subatomic particles. Um and we can manipulate those uh qubits um in such a way that we have access to many more kind of probabilistic states. And the the idea of like it being in many states at once is because when you look at you know the actual maths of what's going on, you can kind of see that this qubit can exist in a state and that is a linear combination of both zero and one. That doesn't mean they're zero and one at the same time. It means that, like, we cannot categorically say until we measure it, is it zero or is it one. So before we've we've actually taken a measurement, it's this kind of mathematical linear uh, combination of the two.
0: Okay. The long and short is it's confusing.
2: Yeah. I kind of <laughs> when I talk to software audiences if you're not like a quantum physicist, very interested in the hardware element, the way that I more often talk about quantum computing is imagine it's just a, you know, a big supercomputer, but it's just uses a slightly different hardware stack than like a regular supercomputer. But for you as a a developer and as a user, you can kind of think of it as almost like a a QPU, the same way you would like a GPU or a CPU, Mm. you know, it's like a, a different type of, of hardware that helps you do more powerful things. And unless you really wanna get into the weeds of like how you actually make the qubits and stabilize them and stuff like that, that's kind of the the need to know at this level.
0: Okay, okay. And, and where are we in terms of the hardware and, and the software to support quantum computing?
2: It's hard to tell, I guess, where we are because there's just so much that we don't know um, about this field. We can start by saying, the theory around quantum computers has been around since pretty much as long as classical computers have been around. Like, you know, even in the kind of the second half of the the 20th century, we were having kind of theoretical discussions around a quantum computer. Um, But it wasn't until 1998 that we actually managed to make that theory into, we managed to create an actual qubit and Mm. and use it. And then since then, you know, we've been rapidly kind of increasing the the power, so to speak, of these devices. Um, Now we're getting up to like kind of many hundreds of qubits. It's a little bit more complicated than that, because there are other quality things that you need to take into account, like just having a pure number of qubits doesn't necessarily indicate how Good, the actual devices. You also need to talk about like the quality of the qubits themselves, how long they can kind of last in a stable space before they kind of destroy themselves. We're working with, you know, subatomic particles. They're not, (laughs) they're not as easy as just light switches that you turn on and off, you know, like your regular computers. We are in a kind of a pretty exciting time where we're just now starting to actually get to things that we think might be useful. We're now kind of reaching the limit of like we are able to get results from our quantum machines that are kind of on par with what like the best supercomputer could do for certain types of problems. It's a very exciting field because we don't really know like what's going to change in the next year. Are we going to make another breakthrough? Are we going to slow things down a bit because we hit a wall? Like we don't really know. It's a very um, hot area of of research
1: you go got to enlighten us on what sort of problems this is good for. Because when I think of computers, I think of that light switch on and off. Zeros and ones. It's binary. And that is predictable. And we know exactly what's going on. It's all quite straightforward. Not that I could design a computer. Uh, but we know exactly the kind of problems that we can solve. When you're telling me we use linear algebra and guess probabilities, I'm like, going, <laughs> what kind of, what's that good for? What, what kind of problems do I solve with that?
2: well, but you can kind of adjust them to get the probabilities that you want. Like if you design your algorithm in the right way, I would say that, you know, the kind of conversations that we're having now, it's more like we're still trying to figure out what problems we could actually, you know, might be problems that we could solve with quantum computers. Even that is kind of an unknown. I mean, if I assume if you go back to, you know, the early days of, of classical computing as well, like nobody could have predicted back in like what the 1950s, what even a regular computer would be able to do today. Like who could fathom that we would be able to like sit here and record a podcast over this thing called the internet, you know, like that wasn't on people's minds back in like the 1950s. So like we're kind of in that space now with quantum, we're still, we're just trying to push the hardware as far as we can. And from the software side, we're just trying to be able to keep up with what the hardware is doing so that we can like run experiments, see what we can do. If you want to get into like the technicals of like, okay, what can and cannot we do with quantum right now? We can't do a lot right now, to be honest. Uh, We still have issues with the quality of the hardware itself that is limiting us. What we have is like kind of our best guess of like what we think we'll be able to do once we have hardware that is stable enough. I don't know how familiar you are with complexity theory. And if you're not, basically, there's this idea that you have, you know, different classes of mathematical problems and they kind of overlap. And it's we're getting really into like the weeds of like mathematical kind of theory now. But there are certain classes of problems which we know are not tractable on classical computers. And then there are, you know, some proportion of that would be possible to solve on quantum computers, theoretically. But there's a lot of it is going to be kind of well, let's f- around and find out
1: you know <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> so okay well let let, let, let let let's take you down a, a specific rabbit hole then we did a show recently with uh, Melchior AM he works for Juniper Networks and wrote a Juniper book about quantum safe cryptography and you know protecting you know future vpns and so on from our encryption of today being cracked in the future by a quantum computer that is coming Is that a thing that that is real? Are you concerned about that? Because there's a lot of fud going on about cryptography and the state of it and building quantum safe algorithms and all that. What's your take?
2: I I don't want to fearmonger here and be like, oh my God, like the internet is going to collapse because of quantum computers, you know, and all security as we know it will just like poof. (laughs) But I think that the underlying concept is a sound concept. Again, coming back to these I, this idea of complexity theory, like you have a certain class of problems, which are very difficult to do classically, not difficult to do with a quantum computer. And one of those mathematical problems is factorization. So, you know, figuring out factors of something. That is a basis that we use for a lot of our modern kind of cryptography algorithms are based on this idea that, It is very easy to check the solution to a factorization problem, but it's very hard for a classical computer to crack it. That's kind of what most of our encryption is based on at the moment. So that is why people think, oh, quantum computers have like, again, theoretically proven that they can solve factorization problems very, very quickly, which then has led people to think, oh, that means that these encryption algorithms that we have that are based on factorization problems now are not going to be safe against quantum computers. Uh, And I think that is a valid, that is a valid fear. Like the proof is in, is in the equations, is in the maths. I don't think it's (laughs) necessarily, I I don't want people to like kind of fall prey to the hype that that means, oh my God, we're never going to be safe on the internet ever. Because even the way that we develop classical encryption algorithms is constantly kind of going through review processes. And even classical computers are getting better and better at cracking our classical algorithms. So Again, from my limited knowledge of the cybersecurity space, there are constantly researchers developing better and better algorithms for classical machines. And now we're also starting to see people turn their attention towards, okay, quantum machines as well. And if you develop an algorithm that is difficult to crack, a cryptographic algorithm that's difficult to crack for a quantum computer, that means you're also going to be extra safe against the classical computers as well. So actually, I think it was last year, NIST, the national... Institute, I don't know what it stands for. The big cybersecurity <laughs> we, guys. We know NIST, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they kind of announced that they had kind of chosen a few algorithms that people have been developing that they recommend people start kind of paying more attention to because they are supposedly quantum safe. And I think IBM developed like two or three of those. And the idea is, again, you, you, you develop a cryptographic algorithm that instead of being based on a mathematical problem like factorization, you base it on something like Lattices, which is a much more complicated math problem and probably difficult even for the for good quantum computers to be able to crack. So to answer your question, I don't think people need to worry about like today switching over to like a different <laughs> cryptographic kind of protocol, but it is definitely something that researchers in that cybersecurity space are paying attention to. And at some point, you know, the same way that we update our classical encryption methods every few years, possibly we'll do the same with quantum in a few years as well.
1: Now, if I have data today that I'm concerned about being cracked in the future, how far into the future
2: is this? Yeah, again, we don't know because we don't know how good or how quickly the...
1: Predict, Abby, Nostradamus, predict. Yeah. <laughs> 10 years, 50 years?
2: I, I would say probably, possibly less than 50 years. I don't think less than. 10. But again, who knows, we could have a we could have a breakthrough tomorrow that like people just haven't told me about.
1: Okay, we're not we're not going to nail you down. That's fair. Um, but <laughs> what it sounds like your take is you have time to switch to a quantum safe algorithm or quantum safe cryptography, and you probably got plenty of time horizon that your data at rest is going to be uh, going to be safe.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I, I like and I think you also need to kind of take it upon yourself to decide if you think there is a real risk of a quantum attack for your for your business and your organization if you are just hosting your yoga studio website and you have a login like I don't think you need to bother with like quantum safe quantum safe cryptography right now if you are like a huge bank or something and you're worried about people like there's also this idea of you know being able to steal someone's data and hold it and then encrypt it later when the technology is improved, you know, much bigger organizations with more valuable data, it's probably something you want to start looking into. Um, And yeah, IBM has, you know, started ramping up their whole kind of like quantum safe program as well to try to, you know, help businesses get ahead of this.
0: Okay. So yeah, if I'm Coca-Cola and I'm trying to protect my secret recipe... You know, I'm I'm worried because you know if someone can crack the encryption on my secret recipe 50 mm-hmm. years from now, that that's that's a problem. You know, but yeah. uh, if I yeah, like you said, if I'm the yoga Studio, I'm I'm less worried about it.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the
0: the quantum-safe algorithms are those something that require a quantum computer to create? Do I need like a QPU, or can a classical computer? use those algorithms
2: no that wouldn't be a very useful thing if only the people (laughs) that have access to the super advanced tech could actually protect it from the super advanced tech the way that i think these algorithms are designed is that you know anyone should be able to implement them. At the moment, though, I think they're a lot more, I I don't know how implementable they actually are quite yet. I know there's still a lot of research going into the, the theory behind these algorithms. I don't know how much they've actually been translated into usable code yet. So I guess we'll just kind of see how things develop over the next couple of years around that. But yeah, like the idea is that you should be able to do it on any classical system.
0: Okay. Yeah, I could almost foresee a future where we have like dedicated chips that do SSL offload today for you know doing TLS mm-hmm. computation. We could have something similar for quantum safe encryption in, in mm-hmm. five, 10 years where we have that dedicated chip that just does that thing and makes it all quantum safe, but it's not a quantum chip in in, in and of itself.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, okay. So bearing all that in mind and sort of the time horizon we're talking about. What does the average like cloud architect or infrastructure engineer need to to know? What knowledge do they need to possess regarding quantum computing? Or is that even a relevant question?
2: At this point, I would still say if it's something that you are you are interested in, by all means like go and invest time in in learning it, at least have like some vague awareness of, of what's going on there. Where I personally see quantum computers having the most use for is for companies that are doing Kind of scientific research. Um, so, people in the scientific computing community is probably more relevant for them. If you're just working in something that isn't related to a scientific field, it's probably not going to be as relevant for you. If, you're, if your business isn't about using a big, powerful computer to do very complex calculations, you don't really have a use for for quantum computers in your business. And then if you're a cloud architect working in that kind of space, then you probably wouldn't have the need to interact with it. If you are a cloud architect or something working in a scientific field, um, then it's, again, something you might want to start being more aware of in the same way that you would kind of think about how do you manage your architecture in terms of like CPUs and GPUs. Now think about the fact that, oh, you might need to involve a QPU at some point. But also like some of the cloud providers themselves need to start integrating these quantum processes into into their orchestration. It might just be a thing where you have to wait for the cloud (laughs) cloud companies to catch up uh, before your average cloud user can start actually um, interacting with them. So I would say watch this space.
1: Now, Abby, is, uh, as Ned mentioned, he's talking about cloud architects, infrastructure engineers. Those are the kind of folks that uh, that Ned and I are and uh, many of our listeners are. So we we love infrastructure, servers yeah. and racks <laughs> and blinky lights and cables <laughs> and all that stuff. So if we were to look at a quantum computer installation, what, what would that look like? We hear there's super cooled rooms and all kinds of fancy stuff. Can you walk us through it?
2: Yeah, sure. Okay, so I have actually had the privilege of being able to go and see some of these devices um, in person. They do look very cool. I feel like a scientist, you know, let's start from the small and and get bigger. You start with like a qubit, a little teeny tiny subatomic particle, whatever, whatever you're making your qubits from like different companies do it different ways. So a, a teeny tiny thing. Then you have to have like a bunch of these kind of wires and system kind of cooling temperature things because they're very fragile. So you have to keep them at a very, very low temperature like like close to zero kelvin kind of temperature that requires a lot of different equipment to basically stabilize this thing see i think everyone's kind of familiar with this idea of like a chandelier kind of looking golden chandelier i don't know you should link a picture to that in your show notes or something um but yeah so basically it ends up looking like this big mess of golden like kind of wires and stuff which is all just like the cooling and the the measurement mechanisms for this for this teeny tiny qubit or maybe it's like a few qubits together um and it's kind of suspended off the ground and you have again kind of this tube that covers it which is for insulation purposes and that is like the computer itself it's kind of suspended off the ground looks like a chandelier in a coat and then you have a bunch of <laughs> lab equipment surrounding it that kind of keeps them running and then they look slightly different I guess if you're just like in the research phase versus if you're in like the actual fully deployed stage when you're in the more kind of deployed stage they're much neater the wires aren't sticking out in so many different directions and yeah and then you kind of we we line them up in a row and we kind of connect them to the internet and then we have another layer now we're kind of moving out of like the physical lab space into the internet cyberspace, I guess. Um, <laughs> and at this stage, we have we need to think about things in terms of like, okay, we need like a quantum assembly language layer. Then we have like some kind of cloud kind of API infrastructure. And then finally you have kind of Kiss kit at the very top layer, which is where I focus my time on, which is the, the interface that people have with the technology.
1: It sounds like something you'd see out of in a in a crazy sci-fi movie or Jay's Bond oh, it film is. or it something, so and cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it it sounds absolutely fascinating. Now, and as you said, the uh, the, the super cooling part of it, talking about zero degree Kelvin, that's like space far away from the sun, kind of cold. You know, we're nearing absolute yeah. zero. Yeah, really, wow. really cold. Okay. Yeah. So w- one question then is: there's a. I guess I'm imagining it as sort of a bridge between the quantum computing realm and the traditional infrastructure realm and you, you kind of describe that layer where there's like there's a cloud API you know and so on mm-hmm. so if if I was to look at the architecture of this computer where I've got qubits and I'm doing you know a different sort of math and computing I've got to get the data from there to traditional computing infrastructure would I see things I recognize in the quantum stack if you will that uh, are part of that bridge
2: as soon as you get away from the the hardware itself, it's just like a regular cloud infrastructure setup. There's a lot of stuff that we have to do custom. We have to think about how we're going to take this piece of data and what format that data is going to be to be able to transfer it. But then the mechanisms with which we transfer it are, are pretty standard. We're using you know the tools that are readily available to pretty much anyone in the industry. I don't know how much I'm allowed to explicitly say about how we do that cloud architecture thing, but... It's if you if you manage to create a quantum computer in your basement and you have a decent amount of cloud credits, you could probably stand up something that would be similar. I I don't want to do a disservice to all of our cloud engineers, but like the really like kind of difficult, unknown part of this whole step is in that hardware area and getting the hardware to work and then getting measurements being able to do measurements on the hardware, get a result back, and then convert that result into something that can then get passed through classical kind of computing infrastructure.
0: Okay, so that gets us sort of into how do we interface with this quantum computer in a language that it understands or that can be implemented in a way that it understands. Kind of reminds me of, I'm not going to write assembly stuff in assembly, at least usually. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to write yeah. or... Definitely not going to write stuff in machine code, right? I need mm-hmm. an interpreter layer. I need some sort of compiler for mm-hmm. my code. So <clears throat> with that in mind, what's sort of the equivalent of that when it comes to how you interact with a uh, quantum computer and quantum systems? What's sort of the, the language and the compiler that, be, that sits behind it?
2: Well, that is Qiskit. This is the brilliant segue for me to start talking about (laughs) open source quantum computing. (laughs) So yeah, the the open source SDK that I work on um, is called Qiskit, Q-I-S-K-I-T. And that is a Python-based project that is essentially a compiler. You write code in Python, it compiles it down into this format, that can then get kind of transferred to a, a real quantum device. I'm not sure if we compile it down directly to the kind of assembly language or if it has to go through another kind of compiling phase on top of that, but it definitely compiles it down into something that can be more easily transferred, you know, through the cloud to the, to the device on the other end.
0: Okay. Does that imply that there's like a common instruction set that these quantum computers are all using, kind of like how we have the x86 instruction set for you know uh, you know CPUs?
2: Yeah. So there is um this a- another open source um kind of standard, I guess. I'm not sure what the right term is for it. Um, called OpenChasm, which I think stands for Open Quantum Assembly Language, and that project is we have. There's a bunch of different Uh, companies that are part of the steering committee for that project, like IBM is one. Um, I think Microsoft is another. Um, But basically, a bunch of quantum companies came together to create this open standard, which we are, again, still early days, but there is hope that this will become like that standard layer that you're talking about. So that something like Qiskit can compile down into that um, assembly language, and then that gets kind of sent to the machines.
0: Okay, it's very nice to hear that it's open source. Because mm-hmm. I know that that's one of the, the difficult things about working with x86 is Intel's implementation is slightly different than AMD's. And if you've worked in VMware for any period of time, you know that you, you, you can't always move things from one platform yeah. to another easily. And then there's other uh, other architectures as well. So that, that's really cool that it's it's open source and that people are trying to collaborate and get, get around this problem to begin with.
2: Yeah, and like I I'm a huge fan of of open source as a as a philosophy and i think in a in a field like quantum computing where you really need a lot of specialist knowledge to be able to do anything useful at least at this stage the more kind of open we can be in terms of our software and our science as well like open science is a big part of this too i think that you know that's going to be the way that we actually push progress forward in this field
1: (laughs) Is there a way to model uh, quantum computing on traditional hardware? I, I mean, it seems like it would be tough to be a programmer, always having to have time with the qubits to be able to model your code and see how things are going.
2: Yeah, exactly. And you know, and and also, and also it's quite expensive. There's not that many quantum computers out there. So <laughs> if you are uh, need to do a lot of experiments, what most researchers do is they will start off developing their algorithm or their experiment and run it on a a simulator there's a few simulators out there that you know are designed to to simulate what a quantum computer would do in this scenario but that only works up to like you know quite a small number of, of qubits and then once you need these bigger machines then you'll have to kind of transfer to to a real device but there are simulators out there as well.
1: So what, what do the extra qubits get me? Um, is it just more speed or is it more complexity of operations I can do or, or both?
2: Yeah, I guess it's a little bit of of both. And this is where if you're doing any kind of serious research and experiments using a quantum device at this stage in, in the field, you need to have a very good understanding about the underlying hardware that you end up running your device on. You need to know kind of like how many qubits it has, how connected those qubits are to each other, what the quality of each of those qubits are, how many operations you can do per second, like all of these factors come into how complex of a computation you can get. So having having more qubits, I guess, means that you have more computational space to work with. So I'm trying to think of a good example for you. Um, let's say you are trying to simulate a molecule. The bigger that molecule is, the more qubits you need, because the more kind of space you need to encode the data on. So yeah, it, it essentially means you can scale up to larger problems or more complex problems. But then within that, you could also, for example, do a smaller a smaller computation. But if you kind of parallelize it with multiple qubits at once, like that also helps if you have more qubits because these qubits themselves don't live for very long. So sometimes if you have like a very long, a computation is going to take a long time. It's better if you can kind of like chop it up into bits and kind of do it at the same time. But it very much depends on the specifics of what you're trying to figure out.
1: You said something along the way there. Qubits being connected to each other. Uh, What does that mean?
2: You have this, and and I'm going to veer back into the the realm of physics for a little bit, just bear with me. (laughs) One of the foundational principles of quantum computing is this idea of entanglement, which basically means that if you do some operation on a qubit that is entangled to another qubit, that entangled qubit kind of instantaneously kind of also can experience some change.
1: Is it saying they mirror state? Is that a right way to say it kind of?
2: i do not sure if that's the specific term it's used. Um, I normally we normally just talk about it in terms of it being entangled to each other. But they kind of the states become connected. That doesn't necessarily mean they are the same state at the same time, but it means that like by changing one state, you automatically kind of trigger something to happen in in the other state. And it, it depends on the specifics of what you're doing. But this is this is a unique property of qubits and quantum states um, in general. Like you could, for example, take this entangled qubit send it to the other side of the galaxy and then do the operation on on your qubit here on Earth and then that other qubit would kind of also react instantaneously. So yeah, that's what I mean about connected. And when you're developing these algorithms that are specifically designed to, you know, with quantum computers in mind, the more entangled it is, normally the more kind of interesting of a result you can get and the more kind of interesting problem you can solve. Um, but that also comes with a trade-off in like the more entangled your states are to each other, the more, I guess, fragile the whole system becomes. So that's also like a trade-off that we're we're kind of dealing with right now.
0: It sounds like, If I want to run one of these programs, I'm limited by the number of qubits and how complex that system can support and the error rate of that system, Mm -hmm. uh, whether I can get the coherence between all the different qubits together and have it sit in that to do the computation in time before it starts collapsing.
2: Exactly. You normally don't just do like one run of an experiment on a computer. You normally Mm -hmm. run it multiple times so that you can then get a sense for okay, like this is how much error I'm seeing because, you know, this this is where the probabilistic element comes into it. If like nine times out of 10, you get one result and then one time out of 10, you get a different result. That one is probably because of an, an error or like noise, we call it. The The qubits were faulty, something went wrong. Like they had a bad day. They decided not to, <laughs> to play nice, you know?
0: <laughs> All right, that's interesting. So if I'm running a computation, I'm not just doing it once. I'm running it multiple times so I can get the whatever confidence interval I'm looking for. Now I'm trying to reach back to the days when I took statistics. Yeah. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out what, what level of confidence do I have in the results based off of the type of quantum computer I'm working with and the computation I'm asking for it to do.
2: Yeah. If you want to talk about it in terms of like a very basic kind of flow of how it works to code on a quantum computer, basically you take a problem, you come up with a mathematical reputation of said problem and then you have to convert that into a quantum circuit. Very similar to if you've ever seen like classical circuit diagrams of what things look like kind of at a lower level. Mm -hmm. We have like that but for quantum as well (laughs) they look very similar. Then that quantum circuit kind of gets compiled into something that the device can understand and then you run it on the device and then you run it like a thousand times then you get a whole like probability distribution of of your results. From that, you can kind of see, okay, this is the solution to, to my problem.
1: How long do these qubits live? Because you're talking about doing these repeat computations. It's very expensive. And then we're saying qubits are fragile and, and you know, that, that whole ecosystem can die mm-hmm. off. It sounds like they're living for fractions of a second or something, but it's got to be better than that.
2: I think now, I, and I always forget because they're constantly like pushing the the fidelity, and it does vary from device to device. But I think now they are living for like a second or two, like and that that's a big deal. Like when we hit that one second barrier, it's <laughs> like oh my god, our qubits can live for like a whole second. Wow. Um, so yeah, we're talking about incredibly fast measurements.
1: When the qubit dies, do you do you take it out and it's you're sad and you have a little funeral for it? And then you pop in a new qubit. I mean, how do you <laughs> replace these things?
2: That's that's I assume is what we do. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. At this point, like I couldn't I couldn't tell you that that's as much as I know. Like they they take it out, everyone pours one out for the qubit that died, and then they put it back. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's more like the qubit itself doesn't die, but essentially what you're doing is is we are interfering with the qubit to like put it into a certain a certain state or a certain position, and we want it to like hold that position, and we want to do more things to it we want to rotate it this way then that way and, and we want to do all these different rotations on this particle um until the act where we want to like measure it and get a result so we just need it to like hold its position for as long as we keep doing stuff to it but at a certain point it says I'm not gonna do what you tell me anymore I'm I'm out I'm I'm done and at that point it's like okay it kind of just resets it back to the zero state and then it will just kind of like hang about there in its regular state until, again, you try to do more stuff to it.
1: It's not that it, it dies exactly, it's more that
2: it reverts to its initial state.
1: Yeah. Okay. But then you can reuse it. You don't have to basically get into the guts of the machine and rebuild the thing.
2: No, I don't think so. And unless I, and, and again, not my area of expertise, but I don't think like the actual qubit itself. The qubit itself is, we're we're just talking about electromagnetic pulses here. You know, you can kind of do this as much as you want. And so long as something within the, the equipment itself doesn't break, which does happen, you know, the actual kind of state of the qubit itself just resets to zero. And then you can like turn it off, I guess, and like assume it and turn it on and like, put it back into that zero state. But I think we pretty much keep the machines running nonstop at this point.
1: So a, a furtherance of quantum computing technology is going to be enabling qubits to hold their state for longer. The longer you could hold state, in theory, the more, the the lengthier, the more complex the computations are you could, you could run against that QPU.
2: Yeah, but that's basically the challenge. Yeah, <laughs> um, keeping these qubits in like a, a state that we can still manipulate and being able to manipulate it for longer periods of time. And this is a becomes an interesting problem further up the stack as well. So getting into this cloud infrastructure layer or even this compiler layer, you know, we are so limited just by how long our qubits stay kind of coherent that we cannot afford for any layer of the software stack to be the bottleneck for getting Mm. experiments to run on these machines. When you're talking about how quickly we need to like get in and get out. With this computation, we can't be like dilly-dallying, you know, sending things, you know, through our REST APIs and like any little bit of latency can have a huge impact on the reliability of the results you get. So we are constantly talking about how do we make this more performant? How do we make this more performant? Um, It's a huge thing for us on like the software side of the house.
0: Okay. So, yeah, you need to remove those bottlenecks because once the system Mm -hmm. is initialized and ready to go, it's like, feed me the stuff because I've got about one second before
2: yeah. I'm gone. <laughs> exactly
0: <laughs> wow yeah. wow that's that's some pressure when you get everything set up and you're ready to run the computation and like mm-hmm. oh on some systems not quite ready it's like well now we just lost it and we have to start from scratch yeah exactly it's oh, got to be frustrating so i'm thinking about like the scarcity of these quantum computers and it's reminding me of like back in the old days when you just had these mainframes at big universities And access to them was very limited and people would have to put in for like, I need some CPU time or some mainframe time, right? You line up with your punch cards like, ooh, Mm -hmm. maybe I can get a slot at 2 a.m. for my research project. Is there such a thing as quantum as a service where I can... As just Joe Schmo buys some time on a quantum computer, or is it still just completely restricted to researchers and and people at the universities?
2: No, we we have a pay-as-you-go offering right now for IBM Quantum within our. I think it's within IBM Cloud's kind of infrastructure. If you if you have a subscription there, you can kind of see the the options. But I, I'd say like it's almost like in between those two models because there is still like a very limited number of devices available. And you do have to queue to get your experiment to run. And sometimes it can take you, you know, multiple days to run a full computation. And a lot of that is just like the the queuing time because many people want to use these devices. And obviously, if you have, you know, if, if you have a bigger budget, then like you can, there are things you can do to kind of reserve time on the devices, depending on if you have a, you know, a relationship with the quantum company that allows you to do that. Yeah, so I'd say it's like a little bit of a a little bit of a mix between the two. Like it's, it's I, I would say it's closer to that old mainframe model, except now you can kind of send your, you don't have to line up with your punch card. <laughs> now you can like kind of sit at home, you know, with your laptop and and submit your job to the queue and and kind of wait for your turn.
0: Okay, okay. So I would write something in Kiskit, and then mm-hmm. I would rent some time through Quantum as a service and submit my. My compiled program to it, and then get whatever the results are from from that program. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to ask you to prognosticate a little bit as our as our final <laughs> question for today, um, and we're not going to hold you to any of this. Right? Not putting it on a spreadsheet. Check in with Abby in a year, you know. Uh, but how do you see things maturing in quantum computing over the next five to ten years?
2: Ooh, I think our devices are going to get better and better. And I think we will start moving from, at the moment, a lot of the research that's going on is is very close to the hardware, just like making the, the hardware itself work better. I think we're going to see more research gaining traction higher up the stack, like more on like the applications level, like, okay, how do we take this technology and apply it to like a real world problem? Like there are already people doing that kind of research today, but there's a limit because of the hardware. Um, I think over the next five to 10 years, our hardware will continue to get significantly better. And we'll also develop better techniques to we're already, you know, doing a lot of this now developing better techniques to deal with these faulty kind of devices that we currently have. So I think we're going to see more breakthroughs in the move higher up the stack, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, this, this seems to be the way of all technology, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. we start out in assembly language, but we eventually yeah. work our way up.
2: Yeah, if, someone,
0: <laughs> if this has piqued someone's interest and they want to know more or dig more into the world of quantum computing, what are some good places to get started?
2: Yes, yeah, it's time for our shameless plug. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we do a lot of stuff with Qiskit and with IBM. Like we're very aware of the fact that most people like do not know much about quantum or how to get going with it so we put a lot of effort into making freely available resources for people to get started learning the theory getting started writing code with it that kind of thing there's a few different places you can find this information probably the best place to start is go to kiskit.org. and on our website there is like there's documentation for getting started with Kiskit. there's also a learn page which kind of takes you more into the theory side of stuff We also have a YouTube channel, which is nice for like kind of more general, I guess, like quantum mechanics theory and how it relates to Qiskit, quantum computers in general. Yeah, that's what I would say. Get started with. Go to Qiskit.org, check out the learning pages, check out the documentation, check out the YouTube.
0: Okay, excellent. That's easy to remember. (laughs) And (laughs) Obviously, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes for anybody who's interested in jumping in. What about you? Are you a social creature? Can people find you on the internet?
2: They can. I am on Twitter still. We'll see if that still is true by the time this podcast goes out. Um, I'm also on um, GitHub and and LinkedIn. Uh, yeah, I can give you guys the handles and stuff and we can put it in the show notes.
0: Okay, awesome. Well, Abby Mitchell, this has been a fascinating conversation about quantum computing. Thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a great way to start the day.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And hey, virtual high fives to you, dear listener, for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. Do you want us to dig more into the world of quantum? We can do that, but we need to know. You can let us know on Twitter at Day2CloudShow or go to our website, Day2Cloud.io and fill out the handy request form that you will find there. And if you like, engineering-oriented shows like this one, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. All of our podcasts, newsletters, and websites are there. It's all super nerdy content designed for your professional career development. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.